0: This is Pedro Gatos uh, welcoming you back to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. On the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7koop.org. We now return to our conversation with Reverend Jim Rigby on Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech. This interview was originally recorded just a couple of days ago on Thursday, January the 23rd, and we rejoin it now. So, well, let's talk about that for a second, then, because with the militarism type of element, I appreciate the fact that you're so struck by the arrogance of our nation type of message that Dr. King was giving us. That, that really humility really means judging all people and all nations on their sovereign rights to do their own, conduct their own foreign policies and domestic policies based on their own sovereign choices and such. And, our, no. our, our, and, and to realize yeah. that,
1: that mm-hmm. it, you can't put the weight on Obama or Clinton or Biden or anybody to tell the United States who we are, right? A part of the president's job description is to lie or oh, else will right. get crucified. Right. It's like if Biden came and started and said, you know, we enslave people over Micronesia in order to get cheap goods. We need to set them free. He wouldn't last two weeks. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's. The whole nation has to change. We can't blame it all on Trump.
0: Right. And so when you say the whole nation, it's really us as a citizenry have to somehow impact our government so that their voices become more truthful.
1: Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Once a year, we choose the lesser of the two evils. That's one day of a year. Then for 364 days a year, we build better possibilities.
0: That's a big concern because I think the rhetoric always sounds better. It's almost like it's a public relations type of deal to get people from really kind of looking at at these important issues. And if we go back and during the inauguration, I just didn't feel it was genuine when President Biden now, uh, along with, I think, President Obama and Carter was not there, but Clinton was and so was Bush. So the four those four went over to Arlington Cemetery and such and, and I, I guess what bothers me is not that we shouldn't pay homage to those that have fallen in foreign wars. Obviously that's that's huge. But the fact that we continue to get into these wars of choice that, like you were indicating, right now in Yemen is the greatest humanitarian disaster the world has right now. And we are firmly responsible for the arming, training and helping uh, Saudi Arabia do that. Before that, it was okay. it was it was Iraq under Bush, uh, of course, where over a million people perished. And but under Obama and Biden, we had, you know, we had Libya, we had the the horrific results of all that, as well as the Honduran coup of uh, 2009, and then the Ukrainian overthrow that brought a coup government to power that's just riddled with neo Nazis. There's been a return to slavery in Libya based on our leading that deal, where they're actually selling slaves, according to CNN and articles within the last year or so. So, when you look at the consequences of our interventions this is really parallel to dr king's concern about vietnam you know about what we were doing to them and how many millions of people perished in that process so i guess the imagery of supporting our troops and giving honor to those that have that lie in in the arlington cemetery is on one side of this deal but the the true integrity of that image would be better honored i think and i think dr king might think if we had less people lining up to get into that cemetery if we just yeah. reduced our militarism
1: yeah it it, it is it's you know they've, they've been so good at convincing soldiers that they're being attacked when wars are questioned you know it's just re, it's really hard to get around that and that's just an ancient ancient technique used by demagogues to <clears throat> to send people for for questionable reasons to kill and to die, and then the people who say, wait a minute, why is that happening, are seen as questioning the soldiers themselves, which none of us are. It's like the soldiers are not the problem.
0: Right. Uh, Arguably, what you promote Reverend, and I've heard you talk about it uh, from an anti-war and anti-unjust war perspective, is that's the way you support your troops (laughs) is by keeping them out of harm's way. You know, yeah, we're going to defend our our country if it's attacked and all of that. But instead, we, we demonize other countries and we create fear and all of this stuff, I think. The Russian example is a good one, just the fact that we are so convinced that they are the aggressor. But, you know, as we've said before, you know, it's the United States that has some seven to 800 military bases throughout the world. Russia doesn't have any outside of its own borders or former Soviet Union nations other than a few in Syria. You know, they're not the ones attacking or initiating the attacks on these countries that we've enumerated. And the
1: irony of it yeah. is that probably the thing that threatens us most is the environmental catastrophe. And there's no greater polluter than the military. Having a huge army is much more likely to kill us than having Russia invade or something. You know, it's it's the irony is that when you look at things like COVID, the things we're using to make ourselves safe are not protecting us from our true enemies, which is not other human beings.
0: So let me ask you, Reverend, returning to the inaugural address of Joe Biden, he speaks about the progress Okay. And, you know, when you look back over our history and seeing that it used to be that women did not have the right to vote, which he alludes to, and certainly African Americans didn't have the right to vote, and that today we mark the swearing in of the first woman in American history elected to national office, Vice President Kamala Harris. And these are important changes. But I guess for the purposes of what's created such a division in our country, I believe, is the decimation of the middle class. President Trump had some 70-plus million supporters. And I think, as we documented before, earlier in the show, that there was an incredible wealth drainage from the majority population to the top 1% during the Obama years and before and after. And that really, that may have been more responsible for setting the stage for such a powerful showing at at the election polls by Donald Trump. But I guess what I'm trying to get to is when you think about or when I think about progress, okay, you know, when is progress a lack of progress? In other words, we can progressively give and generate more rights and uh, less levels of oppression to African Americans over the decades. For instance. But if you start a job and you're already being paid way below a, a livable income of and then you have five pay raises, but you're still making low-income-level wages and struggling to meet the basic needs of your family, while your employers or the corporations you work for are making profits head over heels. You can say we have all this progress, but so how, how do you address that issue as far as trying to get the American public to, to appreciate that unmet need of the majority population?
1: Well, another one of the revolutions of values that Dr. King brought up he said we must move from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. He said when machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, then he said the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, militarism, are incapable of being conquered. Then he came up with the image of the Jericho Road, which is the story of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. and basically said the thing that it's not enough to, to, to bind up the person that's been beaten up there, that he said that true compassion is more this is a quote true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to seeing that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Right. And that he said a true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the people. And say this is not just so he uses that kind of biblical image of the good samaritan to shine a mirror up against what we're doing to our human family in other places
0: that's probably one of the most powerful passages in that whole it's also connected to trying to understand things like systemic racism or something like that because Mm -hmm. what he's saying is the system is flawed right that the edifice the edifice itself is incapable. Other people have said the same thing. I mean, Malcolm, he spoke the same. I mean, it's almost like a convergence of him and Malcolm in this part of the uh, speech that says, you know, you can do all the reforms you want, um, but until you have that radical change in values and change the primary drivers of that edifice itself, the changes are not going to occur. They're just going to be w- words. I-
1: and I think what you're, t- if, the, if the listeners don't, if there's anybody out there listening to your show, and this isn't making any sense to them, if they, if they can look up neoliberalism and understand that there are policies that both Republicans and Democrats have usually agreed upon that give our destiny over to the rich. Mm-hmm. And it's nobody meaning to do it. Everybody's trusting the system to turn things around. But when you have a greed-based system, it's not going to turn around, and you cannot regulate it enough. Yeah. You have a system that rewards the worst people in your culture and takes them into leadership roles. They become the captains of industry and you try to control them with regulations, but they're above the law.
0: Yeah, they make the regulations, right. Mm -hmm.
1: That that, that the essence of capitalism is everything is for sale. If you're regulating capitalism, you're doing it by some other value system than capitalism. So to realize that illusion that Americans have, that you can have your fundamental value system be based on things and property and get to the kind of world that we want is is complete madness, that it has to be people-centered and environmental-centered, web-of-life-centered. And then you build the economy around that. And then you can be sane. You can take whatever from capitalism works within that. But you, can, you can't start with a thing-centered value system and end up with sanity.
0: Yeah, it's almost, too, that you can take his words and then kind of look— backwards through the lens, in, in a sense, to see that the reason we have so much militarism, I believe, is because we have a profit-centered economy run by the beneficiaries of and people that have their own economic interests and not the interests of our country and its values at the apex. So at the end of the day, they're looking for markets They're looking to make sure that people that are in power in those markets are okay with the oppression of those workers for those minimal wages that that help generate profits for investment capital and such.
1: Exactly. When you have discrepancy in wealth, you have to have violence to protect it.
0: Because it doesn't make sense.
1: Yep. To realize that if you have the very wealthy, the 1%, and the 99% that are doing worse and worse every year, you have to militarize the police. Right. You can't have a military empire abroad and empty all of your coffers into keeping that going and then have uh, a livable place at home. Yeah, and, and it, it, requ- it requires uh, everything to become militarized.
0: It's interesting when you look at the history of colonization, right, and you look at the history of, of, of slavery and such, that again goes back to the extreme materialism concept. I mean, because here you have the wealth of nations, that's built off the backs of slaves, for instance, and slavery. So when you look at the the Black Lives Matter and the issues of, and really I've been looking more and more closely over the last few years now on the issue of reparations, that's basically what the strongest argument is. It says, okay, there has been a wealth discrepancy that's been created overwhelmingly, by things like slavery and colonization and that type of thing. And then intergenerationally, these privileged, predominantly Anglo wealth owners can pass that wealth down within their families. And you can try to do all sorts of reforms, get better educated people and those types of things. And what you see Is, for example, as late as like what, 2016 or 15, when Dr. William Darity from Duke and his economist showed that you take an African-American that's a college graduate head of household and they had two thirds wealth of a Anglo head of household that had dropped out of high school. Okay, so so the myth is that you just have to go to school and you have to do all these things and then everything will even itself out, which is just absolutely his work shows that is a myth that it's not a personal responsibility or irresponsibility issue. Of course, that's always part of the equation, but the overwhelming equation is the societal side, which Dr. King talks about in this whole edifice thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I just find that really, really important. And so what are your other reflections? I mean, if you were to think of, you've already elaborated some, some lessons from Dr. King. I think the way that you honor Dr. King is by honoring his interest in trying to get at the truth. And he relentlessly was doing that and he was evolving in I think the direction that we have already indicated and such. But what other messaging or methods do you find particularly important in the legacy of Dr. King?
1: Well, one of the things that jumped out at me today when I was looking back at the speech again, and we do this almost every year, I really miss when we used to have the, the man that was a part of the civil rights movement back there in King's days. That was, I thought, really a wonderful contextualization of everything. His his wrap-up to the speech was the once to every. Uh, man and nation is the way that it's uh, the the hymn was written, originally written. I usually translate it once to every soul and nation, so that it's not sexist. But you know, it's an old hymn, and he he closes the speech with once to every soul and nation. Comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the gloom or blight, and the choice goes by forever. Twixt that darkness and that light, though the cause of evil prosper, yet tis truth alone is strong. Though her portions be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above God's own. Which you know, if you don't believe in God, that may not be inspiration. But the the point is, I think, to realize that what the ancient prophets were talking about, even if. If you're humanist, you have the same values, but you don't. You don't have to believe in, in you know the, a concrete de- deity to realize that you know our lives make a huge difference to other people, and that, that justice for everybody is an expression of what we call love. Mm-hmm. So that we all have this calling and this duty to care for other people, even from other countries, even if they're completely different than we are. And I think that what he was saying by quoting that hymn is, he didn't know if he was going to live through the struggle or not, but that it would be a life worth living if he did this. If he gave himself to his highest value, that his life would be worth living for however long it lasted. And I find that very moving.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I find your interpretation really important, too, because I do think that Dr. King's interpretation of God is, is a principle that goes way past religion. There's universal types of principles that we have of fairness, of equality, of of justice, of a level playing field type of of issues and such. And that's really what his energies were pointed towards. He didn't want any special favors. He just wanted folks, as James Brown said, to get out of the way and let everyone have equal equal opportunity and and relatively equal resources to, to pursue that. And it's interesting because getting back to the Black Lives Matter type of thing, when you look at today, for instance, the reparationists are arguing that, well, look, you know, the African-Americans are about 13 percent or so of the population and own 3 percent of the wealth. And I guess getting back to this uh, system, we can't even have a discussion about another way to live, that as soon as you start criticizing our economic system You have everybody talking about socialism, you know, like, oh, we can't have that. So how do you think is the best way to get people's minds to open up, to look at, you know, potentiality? In other words, what we're potentially capable of rather than actuality, where we are actually at in the uh, false breaks that are sometimes put on the pursuit of looking for better ways to organize society.
1: Well, I may be a bad person to ask that question. As a minister, I believe I should trigger the alarms. So I use the word socialism, not as a particular um, uh, governmental system, but as this vision of human rights for all persons, mm-hmm. a- as a, an economic system based on human rights, not on property rights. Mm-hmm. So I see it almost as like an evolutionary horizon for humankind to get past you know these systems of domination that are based on having something and other people not having it. That, that's a great,
0: like re, Reverend, just real quick, that is a great way of framing it, that anything, if I got what you're saying, that anything that, forget the labels of what it is or all of that, but just things that actually actualize the priority of human rights, the protection of them, and the, the, the guarantee of them.
1: What they've done something. is propagandize us where we can't say the words that describe our oppression without triggering emotional alarms. Uh-huh. So it's, instead of thinking rationally about socialism and the economic system and what it could be—a democratic socialism, just with individual rights—and you know with some some discrepancy in there where, where ambition makes a difference—I mean, you, we could think like that. Except for when your mind goes straight to Venezuela, or you think of Stalin. As soon as that word is said, you just see the gulags with these gray people marching by. It's like, who taught us that? Mm-hmm. Who hypnotizes? Who propagandizes? It's our overlord. And words like radical, that used to mean from the roots. That's the only way to break the liberal conservative shadow play. It's like, what is the, what are the roots? Who has power? Who doesn't? Who has enough to live on? Who doesn't? Those are radical ways. of Approaching if we do not approach the environment radically, we're not going to survive as a species.
0: Yeah, you know, um, Herbert Marcuse, he, he left us many years ago, but I read a number of his books. One of them was One Dimensional Man, and he kind of speaks about the, the, the disempowering of these wonderful German philosophical words like freedom, and it gets changed into the concept under a market-driven deal, like it's like freedom of choice at 7-Eleven it diffuses the energy of the very words that can be used as tools ideologically to pursue this path that you're suggesting we need to take, but that is so inhibited as part of the environment that is controlled by the more powerful interests that want to protect the status quo.
1: And I agree. Those are very, like, the people from the Frankfurt School who analyze what capitalism is doing to our consciousness. You know, it's dated stuff, but I think revisiting that and realizing that it's like, Things like when you externalize the, the the cost of pollution, and you say because it doesn't show up in my ledger that it's an externality, it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. That's insanity. The capitalism that has this kind of uh, commodity fetishism that that judges the worth of something by how it can be exchanged, as opposed to what it is intrinsically. So that polluting water is okay, you know, because it's not that worth. It's not that worth it as an exchange value. But the water table and the topsoil, those things. Are the most precious things on the planet for human beings and clean air and that kind of stuff so to, to to look at clean air through market eyes is insane period and that's just something as a capitalist you're taught to do
0: and you're also taught to not just demonize potential alternatives but make sure they don't work i can i think that's so much of what our foreign policy is that if yeah. we if we can show that something doesn't work and it's not it's not necessarily not working because it's incapable of not working, but when we have our incredible powerful influences through our foreign policy covert and overt deals, we can make a, a society have no chance of succeeding because it has to dedicate so much of its efforts to counteract the interventions that we are promoting. yeah and, and the, the irony
1: country. is we say that that socialism is an unsustainable system, mm. and yet we slap these sanctions on, on these little indigenous cultures that are trying to, to honor community and nature, like Venezuela. It's like these are people that have lived in capitalist hell for centuries, and they're indigenous people trying to get free. And we, we, hit, we slap them with sanctions that are murderous. So it, either, either socialism is an unworkable system, or it's this cancer that's going to take over the whole world. We've got to choose which of those is true. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're taught this contradictory response to it.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you have to step outside of your frame of reference in order to develop some tools to see that your frame of reference has been created by the culture in which you've grown up in and unconsciously kind of made you incapable of seeing past your face.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a hybrid. It's not going to be pure socialism. But You know, when you think, when somebody says socialism and you think of Stalin, but you don't think of Iceland, you don't think of the Nordic countries, they're the happiest places on Earth. It's like, that's propaganda. That is not rational thinking. I mean, the the idea that that it's it's totalitarian to try to get me health care and a livable wage. I mean, you know somebody's propagandized when they're saying, no health care for me. Let me tell you something. I'm not going to have anybody cramming health down my throat.
0: Yes, you know, just to kind of sum up our discussion, it's like the alienation of our, of the human potential in a real way that in order to ensure that things don't change, you're almost obligated to to demonize any other form of social organization that doesn't promote this very wealth unequal kind of distribution. And, and I agree with you. I think the, the most promising systems are those that have a mixed economy, right? So you know, yeah. you do have incentivizing and you do have free trade or fair trade, I should say, instead of free trade. But but yeah, but those types of discussions are never presented on MSNBC or Fox or, or CNN. <laughs> Listen, Reverend, we're out of time. And I want to thank you for your contributions to looking at Dr. Martin Luther King in, in a different light. And I want to remind our listeners that we had the great pleasure... Visiting with Reverend Jim Rigby. He's a Presbyterian minister here in Austin and has been intimately involved in social justice and equity issues when it comes to gender, economic and racial issues in the community for some time. So thank you so much, Reverend, for your uh, thoughts tonight. And I want to remind people that if people want to get a different perspective, uh, one of reflection from a more spiritual, I believe, point of view, they can access Reverend Rigby, and one more time, what would you say it was, J. Rigby?
1: Uh, if If you want the blog, which I'm just now getting up and going again, dot org. one okay. word, and then there's Facebook you can do, or you can come to our church website, St. Andrew's Presbyterian, and make links. So, Very good. Whatever works.
0: Very good. All right, friend, thanks so much for your insights tonight, and we will uh, we'll stay in touch.
1: Well, thank you for your message. I appreciate that you're always there, even through COVID, trying to make it a little bit brighter for
0: people. So thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Please stay tuned for our local music mix that comes up next. To our listening public, thank you for joining us once again. Please email any questions, comments, or interest to pgatos00 at gmail.com. We take you out as we do each week with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Check out the...